Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of One Symphony. I am so excited to be joined today by American composer Barbara Harbaugh. Barbara spent her career as a performer, professor, and creator of symphonies, operas, string orchestra works, musicals, chamber music, silent film scores, ballets, and much more. For decades, she has been a trailblazing advocate for women in the arts. Her music can be found on many major labels, such as MSR Classics, Naxos, and Albany Records, and many more, with two upcoming album releases of chamber and orchestral music. Barbara holds degrees from Yale and Eastman, along with her Curator's Distinguished Professorship at the University of Missouri in St. Louis, she's received the Hellenic Spirit Foundation Award, the YWCA Leader of Distinction Award, and many more. Barbara, it's so awesome to have you on the show today. I just wanted to start by asking you, in addition to being an amazing composer, you are a performer, a pianist, organist, harpsichordist. Can you talk about some of your early influences and how your career at the keyboard influenced you to become a composer? Thanks, Devin. I'm delighted to be here with you today. What a fascinating question to begin with is going back decades to go back to my beginnings. And I've logged many hours on an organ bench when I was performing and getting ready to be a performer as well as piano and harpsichord. And as like most composers, you start out with what you know the best. And that happened to be organ and harpsichord. So my first compositions were for those instruments. And then I got a church job and I had a choir and I thought, hmm, one summer I was going through piles of anthems to get ready for the next season. And I went through them and by the time I was through, I said, well, you know what? I think I can write one that's as good as that. Now that's pretty arrogant for a young composer. Well, I sat down and I wrote an anthem The choir actually stayed and sang it, so I I thought that was a good step forward. And then they suggested I send it away for a publisher. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I sent it to a publisher. I didn't hear, and I didn't hear, and I thought, well, that's pretty bad. So in the mail, I got a packet from the publisher, and I thought, oh, they just sent it back, and with anthems to show me how to write a good anthem. I thought that was what I was going to get. Well, lo and behold, in this came a contract. I had a contract with them. I was so excited. I, you know, when you're when you're young and in your 20, late 20s, you just go, oh my gosh, this is just incredible. I got the packet. I opened it. And with all the goodies inside, I was so excited. And the first year the royalties came in, I was so excited. We went to the best French restaurant in Rochester, New York. We were thrilled. Oh, this is simple. I can do this any day. Second year, royalties came in, and I got something enough to go to McDonald's. The third year, the royalists came in, and they sent me 39 cents worth of stamps. Not a big sale that year. (laughs) So it was was a, a fun thing. And so, you know, I thought, this is so easy. I wrote hundreds of anthems that no one ever wanted. So so I went on from my career from there. So I went from instrumental keyboard to choral, chamber music, string orchestra, orchestra, and then opera and musicals. Uh, You evolve just the way it is because you keep adding instruments to your war chef, so to speak, and you 
write what people ask you to write. And so I've been lucky over the years to get a few commissions here and there for big numbers. Can you talk about like how old you were when when those when you were sending those anthems out? Yes, I was about I would say 29. So that would have been like when you were finishing doctoral work at Eastman, I presume. Yes. Because yeah. I know I, I was thinking maybe if you had money from royalties, you might go to Dinosaur Barbecue in Rochester <laughs> instead of a French restaurant. But that's to each his own. Yeah, I, I, that was probably a few decades before. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was fun. So yeah, um, I enjoy writing. I like to write in the morning, specifically before emails, the phone. What well, luckily. During this pandemic time, it's a lot calmer than it was when I when I was teaching, with all the accoutrements that go with teaching and students. You you said about ten years ago for your plan for the day, you choose your priority for the day and you go with that. You get something measurable by the end of the day. Can you kind of talk about more about your compositional process and maybe how it's evolved? Yeah, there are good days and there are not so good days. And when any creativity, it also has a lot to do on not only your uh, busyness of the day, but your health, uh, your relationships, all those things kind of help create and help you to create as a creator. And I especially like, I have a a way I write. I start and I say, okay, I'm not having any ideas coming in. I'm going to sit here and write until I get a page done. Doesn't matter whether it's orchestral, keyboard, choral. And I sit there and I do it and I'm I'm happy. It may be the next day the delete button comes in, but that's okay because I'm I'm I try to be disciplined about writing. That you do it and you keep doing it. There's a theory that um, it's called a 70-20-10, where 70% of your output's mediocre. 20% suck, so they that's in quotes, suck, and 10% is good. So it's quantity brings quality. So I kind of believe in that too. If you don't write, you don't write, you don't get good results. And do you normally compose or orchestrate in the full score? Or do you start, especially being a pianist, do you start at the keyboard and then orchestrate it later? I like to have what I call a skeleton blueprint. Uh, which is basically could be a keyboard uh, a, a keyboard part. It looks like hieroglyphics to anybody else. You know, it, when you're doing your own stuff, no one else could take that and make anything out of it. But I know what I I, I think I know what I was doing with that, and so I do that. Um, and yes, it's easier for me in my writing to have some sort of a PV score or something that leads me to write a larger orchestral score. I often hear melodies. Walking to walking to the piano or walking to my station to write, um, that's going to be a good day. Doesn't happen all the time, but that's a good day. In addition to be uh, being a composer, you're an incredible keyboardist and organist, um, and we have uh, your fanfare and toccata. Before we play some of that, I'm kind of curious. Most of the big biggest uh, quote unquote names of composers that we remember, you know, who have passed on and they're keyboardists, you know, that was their main instrument with with few exceptions. I think Wagner and Berlioz um, didn't play much piano. Um, But can you talk about how your career or performing life at the keyboard has been able to help or hinder your compositions? Yes, I have a a great, um, when I was recording the first, my first symphonies with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the tuba player ran up to me and he said, you write melodies for the tuba. I can't believe it. It's not just um, oom-pa-pa. And I said, you know, tuba is like my pedals on a pipe organ. They're the big grounding moment. And, you know, I hope he went away happy with that. <laughs> he sounds like he was happy before because of your melodies. Yeah, he actually got to, to, to do melodies. I like, uh, I like brass. I like lower brass. I wrote a piece for Lower Brass Consortium in um, St. Louis, Missouri. So, uh, yeah, I like it. And I, so I think the organ. And if you're an organist, you can play, you can have woodwind choirs. You can have brass choirs. You can have flute choirs, you can have principal choirs. So I'm, I think that helps with writing music if you have those things as staples in your, in your uh, toolbox, so to speak. Would you say out of all the different genres you write in, have you had 
more challenges than any any specific genre or genres? I'll tell you about a failure. We love failure. <laughs> I love to hear about failure. <laughs> if you don't have failures, you don't grow. Period. <laughs> so um, I thought I can write. A, I can write a great gospel piece. I can do that. No. I can't. There is something that's not in me that is, I think, so classically, Germanically trained that it doesn't swing. So, uh, yeah, I have different genres that I, I think I do better at than others. Gospel's not one of them. Well, uh, you, you talked about being an organist and how that translates well to the hymns and to the brass fanfares. One of your incredible pieces is the Sweet Luther for orchestra. And this is on Martin Luther, who many people may not know, he was also composer of hymns. And out of the religion that he would create or the branch that he would create comes Johann Sebastian Bach, kind of one of the grandfathers of all that we do in Western music. Can you talk about that relationship and also the idea of, we think of hymns being in the church. However, in this time, in Luther's and Bach's time, you know, Bach would work at the church on a Sunday and then compose for the pub on a Monday. Um, so can you can you talk about, about those subjects? Yes. Um, I grew up, I played my first church service when I was nine years old. I was tall enough to reach the pedals. And I loved it then. And I can probably play Bringing in the Sheaves in any key right to this day. <laughs> and that's, that's a really old Pentecostal hymn. And I grew up in the hills of Pennsylvania, literally. Near the town was miles away. So I mean, so I had a lot of time to practice and play. So I, I'm well steeped in, in hymnology, so to speak, and enjoy hymns very much. Uh, I especially enjoy spirituals and have written a lot of music uh, based on spirituals as well. But hymns have been a part of me just like they were a part of Bach. And all of the composers in the Germanic transition and through the years wrote on hymns. Long term, in a long time, I think uh, meaning for hymns and music. And, and your work out of you know this this Luther suite, uh, it's it's very celebratory. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's it's part of a you know people are having a party and there's musicians playing these big fanfares in the background. Can you talk about the concept behind that? Yes, uh, I, I like that feeling of joyous celebration. That feeling of something that's inspires us kind of hits our emotions, hits our heart. And it's it's just fun to hear. And when you start tapping your foot a little bit, it's got some good stuff going. Here is In Peace and Joy, I Now Depart, the second movement from Barbara Harbach's Sweet Luther for Orchestra.
So in 2005, you created a series or platform called Women in the Arts. This was to celebrate female creators with concerts, exhibitions, and it included a mentoring program and you created an endowment out of it. So much of your work has these amazing historical connections to female figures that are maybe well-known or not as well-known. One great composer and visionary that keeps coming up in the symphonic music world and the arts world and the spiritual world is Hildegard von Bingen. You have this great piece of music that's going to be released uh, on an album called Orchestra Six. You have six albums of orchestral music and, and counting. It's called Almost Noble Greenness from Visions of Hildegard. Can you talk a little bit about um, Hildegard von Bingen, who was an abbess, composer, a mystic? Uh, she also created this monophonic music that we also think of as chant today, uh, just one kind of line. Can you talk about how you translate her story and visions into the multiphonic orchestra of a thousand years later? Good question. I have admired her work for, for decades and uh, she has touched, I think, generations of, of composers along the way. It was very interesting to get interested. Uh, I, I was teaching at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, and I had an epiphany in a moment, in a way, a well-known musicologist in Buffalo said to me, well, there are no good women composers, and if there were any, they would not be very good. Well, that was the gauntlet that went down, and so I started researching, and one of the first ones I discovered was Hildegard, going back to the 12th century. I mean, it's amazing, and she is one of the most recorded medieval composers, even today, and how to translate that into something that doesn't sound like I'm trying to write chant. I don't, I don't try to mimic what she did. She wrote these soaring, ecstatic melodies. She had migraines, we believe, and that's where her painting visions came down from. She had, it would get terrible migraine headaches and then do her artwork at that time. So I, I did not feel that I needed to try to mimic her or imitate her at all. I tried to get synthesize her through my muse and how I would create and think about it. And so soaring melodies, changing meters, changing harmonies became part of that piece. And just moving forward uh, uh, almost a thousand years, you have in your Freedom Suite, the second movement subtitled Eliza in Lizzie. You're incorporating these spirituals, a couple of my favorites. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a uh, motherless child, and then go down Moses. You talked a little bit about the gospel music and your attempt at that. Um, can you talk about incorporating spirituals into your own music? Yes. From hymns that we learned, Were You There? Uh, were traditional hymns uh, and spirituals. I guess from playing in 
churches all these years. Eliza and Lizzie were the children of Harriet and Dred Scott. They were girls that were there. And St. Louis was the home and for Dred Scott and Harriet Scott. I wrote a piece of called Harriet's Story, three movements on her for voice and piano and violin. And now uh, this Freedom Suite I did um, with the same thing because of being in St. Louis is one reason, but the other was it touched me so their story, they had to sue for their own freedom. It's an amazing story and it, it's a heartbreaking story, but they did get their freedom at the end. So yes, I tried to incorporate, uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child is very much what I feel is very part of their story. Uh, in more ways than just not having a mother, but not having a homeland, not having any other protection for them. Just staying on on your St. Louis and your Missouri c connection, and I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, and I, I spent a lot of time down in, in St. Louis, so I know the area quite well. Uh, playing I, playing ice hockey around Cahokia and Crevecourt and all those other um, places around St. Louis. Oh, cool! Yeah, you've taken it upon yourself to respond and provide healing with regards to social issues. So the events that happened in Ferguson in 2014, you created your symphony number no. 10, Symphony for Ferguson. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that was a, a horrific time, 2014. It just divided the city. And St. Louis, uh, in, it's a north and south city in a way. We were on the kind of divided at the time. And Ferguson was only about a few miles down the road from where we lived. And so we would go, we'd, we'd see the silent marchers go by and it was just incredible and kind of heartbreaking. It's funny when we were, we were in Oman on a visit and all of the TV and radio stations were focused on Ferguson. And which, which I think is a good thing, bringing it to attention. So I was asked to, um, I was commissioned by the Missouri Humanities Council to write a symphony using a lot of melodies that would work with St. Louis and Ferguson. And of course, when you think about St. Louis you, and you think about it, you think of St. Louis Blues and W.C. Handy. Uh, so I... I did something that's not often done. I tried to incorporate kind of a jazz style into the orchestra for fun and something that might lighten spirits through this horrible incident that we had to live through.
Just going across the, the 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 pond, so to speak, to uh, your Ireland remembered um, from Incantata. It's a poem by Paul Muldoon. Can you talk about uh, this? How how you translated this poem into words, and how you bring this idea of elegy and celebration together? With different moods and with different instrumentations, and trying not to to. I I write a lot where I have a melody will come out in some in one of the choirs of the orchestra or chamber ensemble, and then I'll have another melody. And then what I always like to do is then combine them. I looked for some Irish tunes that I could relate to, or I thought maybe listeners could relate to. And a part of them is Ireland Remember. And the one tune that struck me as, as just terrific was The Humors of Whiskey. It was a great tune, and if you like Irish whiskey, <laughs> it's a great tune to drink to. <laughs> and that's referred to in the poem. I think he says he talks about his R and R is passing out on the street or something with whiskey. Or yes, yeah, I, I know it's really it was really into him. Um, uh, <laughs> he wrote that, and I did some the Liverpool hornpipe, as well as a tune called Banshee, which is just as wonderful. Wonderful tune. It's been done by several composers in the 20th century. And the the one that is the most, I think, I would say mournful is for Ireland, I'd not tell her name. So I'd use all these themes in this piece called Ireland Remembered and tried to combine them in a way that you could still hear them, but they all melded together.
So you mentioned you have an upbringing in Pennsylvania. I would suspect that was close to where Martha Graham intended her events to take place around the collaboration with Aaron Copeland for the ballet for Martha, which we now know as Appalachian Spring. How we got connected is we're performing your American Solstice, also on a program with Appalachian Spring. And your American Solstice, this piece that you created, I think about 20 years ago or something, um, this is the exact, this is the exact same instrumentation as the original 13 instrument version of Copeland's Appalachian Spring. Was that intentional? Yes. I just love, I love most things of Copeland. Um, I would say I love all of Copeland. <laughs> it's terrific. Uh, yes. And actually it was Dr. James Richard, who conducted the premiere of it, uh, suggested that I write it with the same instrumentation. And I thought, oh, okay, it's been done, but why not do something else. And I wrote it as a ballet and it was performed as a ballet. And it worked, it worked fairly well, I thought. And so, yeah, I, it was intentional. Can you talk a little bit about the melodies or the materials that you used in American Solstice? Were you intentionally correlating those with any Copeland melodies or any other traditional American melodies? There was the Shaker hymn is a little bit, I have a little bit of that in there. Uh, which is, you know, uh, used in, in the Copeland. Uh, and I wrote a, a, what I call a new spiritual sort of give me Jesus. Um, and it's used predominantly in there also. And so you talked about you have kind of Germanic roots, and now you're in New Mexico, it's my understanding, but you spent a lot of time in St. Louis, where you were a professor, distinguished professor there. Uh, can you talk about your move to New Mexico and how that's influenced any of your music or your life? We're here basically because about 30 years ago, my husband came here, fell in love with Mexican cuisine, fell in love with the, with the, I'd say the landscape. So I said to him, okay, look, we'll go visit there. We're getting ready to retire. So we'll go visit New Mexico and see. And I came here. What could be more perfect out of our back Window is the Oregon Mountains. Amazing. And you and you didn't get to name those. <laughs> no. <laughs> they were named before. So, I mean, it, it was almost like, oh, it's got to be. And so we came here and uh, I written one piece uh, with a little bit of Spanish to it, which is the, um, it's in Cuatro Dances for Flute and Piano, and anticipating our move to the Southwest. And so um, the, this Quattro Dances, uh, it, this is coming out, I believe, very shortly. It'll be released on Chamber 6, uh, which is your sixth iteration of chamber music um, that's, that's produced. Can you talk about the first movement, which is a dance of flamenco? Um, I love how you put together these two different elements of a fantasia and a toccata, and then you pair that with the, the tango. Can you talk about your inspiration behind that? Yeah, I do like flamenco. Uh, when we were first married, there was in Rochester, New York, there was a Spanish restaurant with flamenco dancers. And it oh, wow. was really cool. And I liked it. I like, and I love flamenco guitar music. Just love it. And so, uh, but you can't quite have just, you can't just imitate the flamenco guitar. So I tried to expand it a little bit into flute and piano. And I've always loved tangos. I love that rhythm. Written several pieces on tango rhythms. Uh, so yeah, I do like that kind of sultry, you know, South America feeling. Thank you. 
So I know you had um, a lot of connection with your women in the arts initiatives and a lot of other connections with, um, you know, city and arts councils in Missouri. Can you talk about any kind of community projects or connections or collaborations that you've started in New Mexico? And where in New Mexico are you? We're in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which oh, Las Cruces. I'm yeah. I'm uh, I'm condu- I'm guest conducting them uh, March in March. Oh, you're kidding! Year. Yeah, <laughs> this we'll month. To, uh, well, a year from now. Oh, oh, that is yeah. so cool! Yeah, yeah, I'll, so I'll we'll be have there. to we'll have to do. I'll have to put a piece of yours out there or something. Oh, I would. I would be just thrilled <laughs> to pieces. Oh, congratulations! That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's you'll love it. You'll just love it. Yeah, I spent some time in Santa Fe. I was the director for their youth orchestras for a while. Um, and, and of course, my wife was studying Alexander Technique in, in Santa Fe. And um, we have some good friends in Albuquerque. So And her family was in El Paso a little bit. Um, so we have a lot of connections close to where, where you are. So. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. I've No, we moved here right before the pandemic closed us. Everybody. Oh, very recently. So, wow. So, okay. I mean, we we only know about four people and their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, because there's so much open space, right? <laughs> I know. So no, we're 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 hoping uh, that after this calms down a little bit, the pandemic calms down, that we can get to know some people and I can do some things and do some volunteer work, hopefully here. But when I was in St. Louis, I did a lot with women in music, uh, of of historical and contemporary women creators of all forms of creativity from music to arts to painting to sculpture and so on. I did a lot of that. My first year there, I thought um, I would be so happy if we could get maybe 80 to 100 different events going on that we could celebrate women creators. Just not save it for March, but just all, all year long. Well, by the time I was done, I had over 800 events that women had the ball started rolling. So it was really incredibly good, um, good feeling to do it. Even when I was in the State University of New York at Buffalo, I did uh, three symposium of women creators. So it's been a part of me to help publicize women creators who are just so good. But as we all know, if you live long enough, you might get somewhere, you know, and if you don't, you need advocates to help you get there. So I'm, I'm an advocate. So you've been doing this for decades, uh, advocating for female composers and artists. Can you maybe give us an assessment in terms of the orchestra world? Have you seen significant changes and are you happy with them? Yes, I'll go. The St. Louis Symphony Orchestra has more women than men in it now. That is tremendous. Uh, they still, I think, pick at the Vienna Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra, and Vienna is because of that. But I think the world is much more aware of women creators. It's, you know, if you're a male creator at this time, you have a tough road too. It's not women. Getting your music out, uh, if you write really advanced kind of, uh, you know, kind of dissonant music, it gets dismissed too. It's hard for men and women. But I think the picture is changing. The Me Too movement is changing everything. I'm looking forward to better days. In fact, I'm hoping that when the pandemic is over, it's going to be like the Renaissance. Uh, The Renaissance happened after Black Death and the Medieval Ages. And look at the blossoming that came forward. And I'm hoping that will happen in the art.
And can you talk about maybe your relationship with performers as a composer? Uh, how do you how do you work with orchestras or conductors, like whether it be in recording sessions or have you ever done any kind of online uh, rehearsals or do you prefer to be in the rehearsal kind of working with the orchestra in a live setting? Both of the above. Uh, I basically I'm not a, I'm not a conductor, so I'm, I'm not in front. And uh, I, I would say with I've been very fortunate in. Most academic institutions where I have been teaching, they've been marvelous performers and they're kind enough to play and record my pieces. St. Louis was just wonderful with a wonderful amount of excellent musicians there. And so that helps a lot uh, to have musicians willing to play your things and your pieces of music. And uh, going over to the uh, London Philharmonic, I'm I'm just a spectator, basically, but I have one first recording session we did with them, violist, of course, a violist would raise their hand and say, is it an F or an F sharp? I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> uh, so is it an F or F sharp? And the conductor would argue and his point of view and the violist would argue their point of view. So one of them wanted an F and one of them wanted an F sharp? Yes. Oh. Yes. And so finally someone said, isn't the composer here? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> who, so who convinced you? Whose you. side are you on, Barbara? <laughs> Whose side? <laughs> yeah. I usually go as written. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, was the violist or the conductor right? Oh, do I have to say? <laughs> well, maybe it depends. <laughs> Yeah, it was the conductor. Well, yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, I say he's a marvelous, marvelous conductor, David Angus. He does the um, Boston Lyric Opera Company, or did, I don't know about right now, over the pandemic, um, but marvelous. And, and since a lot of my music is very melodic and melody-driven, since he's an opera composer, he understood my music quickly and very well. What would you say to people who um, who may not have heard your music? I'm a melodist. I like melodies. I like shifting harmonies. I like changing meters. Uh, and I think I like to write many different melodies in a movement and then combine them. So I think that's my organ training in, in a way there. So I think you could relate to my music without having to think that you don't understand beep and squawk. Your voice is a is a purely American voice. You don't have to think too much to understand the emotion that you're portraying. And I think it speaks directly to the heart and directly to the listener and, and the performer. And these melodies are beautiful to play. And um, anytime I have the opportunity to meet or encounter a great melodist, I'm so honored and excited just moving forward, being able to share that music with the world. Barbara, I just wanted to thank you for the time you've taken today. And uh, I'm really looking forward to performing American Solstice and more of your music in the future. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. And uh, we need advocates like you, a conductor who can do a whole different type of music and make it and sell it. That's a, that's a real gift. Yeah, that's what we are. We're salesmen, all of us at heart, right? <laughs> are, aren't we really? I mean, it sounds pretty crass, but <laughs> we do our best. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful thing you are doing for Boulder, Colorado and the world at large in talking to composers, doing contemporary music. That is just, just outstanding.
Thank you for joining us on One Symphony, and thanks to Barbara Harbach for sharing her music and performances. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible. Twilight Dream from Frontier Fancies was performed by the Slovak Radio Symphony violinist Frantisek Novotny and conducted by Kirk Trevor on MSR Classics. In peace and joy, I now depart from Barbara's sweet Luther, Eliza and Lizzie from the Freedom Suite for String Orchestra, Together in Harmony from Symphony for Ferguson, and Midnight Tango from Night Soundings for Orchestra were performed by the London Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by David Angus. Ireland Remembered from Encantada was played by the St. Louis Chamber Players conducted by James Richards. Almost Noble Greenness from Visions of Hildegard and Danza Flamenco from Quattro Danza's Para Flauta e Piano were played by flautist Jennifer Mazzoni, violinist Jane Price, and pianist Ala Vascobuenikova. You can check out Barbara's music online at barbaraharbach.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music